Hello, Grace. I want to greet uh, not only all of you here, but at all of our locations and anybody joining us online today. So as we continue our series called Beyond the Manger, today we will be talking about finding a joy in a world of suffering. You know, one of the most frustrating things in the Christian life is the apparent contradiction between the promises of God that we see and read in Scripture and our own lived experience, right? There's a gap between those two things, it seems. And that means that we find ourselves in a particular moment in history where we have to face suffering constantly. Some large, some small. Sometimes they are self-inflicted sufferings. We make choices that we probably should not have made, and we have to face the consequences of those choices. Sometimes suffering is inflicted on us by other people, and then there's just suffering that happens simply because we live in a world that has gone awry. Things are not the way it should be. And so the place that we find ourselves in God's larger story is, is a place where theologians call, uh, this, use this term, the already and but not yet. Right? That, that is God's reign and rule, what the Bible calls the kingdom of God, is already here. It is present. It is real. We, so we experience forgiveness and reconciliation and healing and redemption. And yet at the same time, it is not yet fully realized. It is still to come. Our ultimate healing and reconciliation and redemption will come when Jesus returns once again. When, as scripture says, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And what the book of Revelation describes as when the new heavens and new earth will come down and then God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, no more pain, and no more suffering. And so as we live in this tension of the already but not yet, on one hand, Jesus has conquered sin and death. And yet, we live in a world where sin and death are constantly before us. And not only just in the world around us, but also within ourselves. And so that brings us to that place of asking, like, so do we have victory in Jesus or, or not? Oftentimes, that that question is asked this way. If Jesus has conquered sin and death, why is there still so much suffering in the world? Maybe you've asked that question. Certainly, you've heard other people ask that question. Perhaps an analogy from World War II can help us better understand this apparent contradiction. So history uh, records two very important dates towards the end of World War II, D-Day and V-E-Day. Well, D-Day took place on June, 4, June 6, 1944, right? When the Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy, France, and this was the turning point in the war. And once this landing was uh, successfully completed, Hitler's fate was sealed, and the war was effectively won. Yet, total victory in Europe, or VE Day, did not occur until May 7, 1945 when uh, German forces finally laid down their arms and surrendered in defeat in Belgium. And this 11-month period, this interval, is remembered as one of the bloodiest times of the entire war, 
those 11 months, where battles and skirmishes, skirmishes happened all over France and Belgium and Germany. And although the enemy had been defeated, battles were still being waged and fought until the final day of surrender. And I think that's a, a great image for us to consider because it is the cross that is our D-Day. When Jesus conquered sin and death and declared victory for his people, And yet, our final victory is still awaits uh, until Christ returns again. The war has already been won, the enemy is defeated, and yet, the battle still rages on. So we live in a world where evil and suffering have yet to lay down their arms and surrender. And so as we enter, as we are in the season of Advent, Advent is this period uh, which begins four weeks before Christmas, when Christians actually look forward to the advent or the coming of Jesus. And in this period, we acknowledge the tension that we feel of being in this in-between place, right? in between God's first arrival on earth as a human being and his second arrival when he will return as a conquering king to vanish sin and darkness and death and suffering. And until then, we find ourselves involved in battles and skirmishes that still rage all around us and within us. And so, the posture we take in this time that we're waiting, we do not give in to passive disengagement. Why? Because the battle still rages on. And yet, we do not give in to uh, uh, hopeless despair. Because why? The battle, the, the war is already won. The enemy is defeated. And here's the whole point that, that I want to make. What we do and how we live while we wait in this already but not yet moment in history makes all the difference. What we do while we're, we're waiting for the advent of Jesus makes all the difference. Let me just give you an illustration. There was an article in the New York Times about how executives at a Houston airport were trying to deal with all these customer complaints uh, about the long wait at baggage claim. And certainly many of you have experienced that where you are, you're just standing there waiting at the carousel for your luggage to finally come through. And it got to that place in in this Houston airport where the executives knew they had to do something. So their first move was to hire more baggage handlers. You know what? It worked for a little while, right? They lowered their wait time to eight minutes, which was ahead of the industry average. But here's the thing, people still complained about having to wait for their luggage. And then the executives noticed that nobody complained about the short walk, about a minute walk from the arrival gate to baggage claim. Nobody complained about it. All they did was complain about having to wait there once they got to baggage claim. So here's what they did. They moved the arrival gate farther away from the baggage claim. Right? So people would now have to walk longer in order to, to, get, to get their luggage uh, at baggage claim. And you know what? It solved the problem. In fact, people started to compliment the airport because their luggage was waiting for them by the time they arrived at baggage claim. And here is what they discovered, which is really important. Again, what you do while you're waiting makes all the difference. And so the problem people have with waiting is that they don't know how to occupy themselves in in that in-between time. 
So what actually helped the, these passenger, passengers was to actually make that walk to baggage claim because it gave them the sense that they were doing something in between, in between arriving at the terminal and receiving their luggage. And so going back to the point of living in the already but not yet, what we do and how we live in this moment in time, as we look forward to the advent of Jesus, while we're waiting, what we do and how we live makes all the difference in the world. Now, especially as we put the filters on in the topic of suffering that we talk, we're talking about today, I often seen, see people respond in one of two ways when it comes to suffering. One way to respond to suffering is just resign cynicism, right? Uh, and they, what they carry with them is this victim mentality through all of life, blaming everybody and everything uh, uh, for all the suffering that they're going through. The other response that I often see uh, that's different, almost the opposite of resigned cynicism, is just blind optimism. They wear rose-colored glasses, they think the world is great, there's no problems, and they're just happy-go-lucky, and they can't acknowledge, really, the devastation that's happening all around them. So what I want to do is uh, share a couple truths of how do we live in this already-but-not-yet period, especially in light of the suffering that we see around us and the suffering that comes to our lives as well, too. So the first truth that I want to talk about about suffering is this. When you experience suffering, here, here's the thing. You can be honest uh, about your pain because God can handle your tough questions. The, bio, the, the question that is asked more than any other in the entire Bible, any guesses, uh, any of our locations, what is the most frequently asked question in the entire Bible? Ready? Here it is. How long, O oh Lord? Right? How long, O oh Lord, will you turn your face away from me? How long, O oh Lord, will you go on ignoring me? How long, O oh Lord, before you rescue me? Right? And while this may seem a bit sacrilegious or even irreverent, these questions actually come directly from the pages of Scripture. And part of the reason why I think they're included in the Bible is to give us, God's people, a proper framework and language to express our cries of pain and grief and sorrows to God. And so maybe you've cried this out too. How long, O oh Lord, before you deliver me from this pain and this suffering? Well, the biblical term for this kind of language is called lament. And the Bible is actually filled with lament. Uh, in fact, there's an entire book in the Bible called the book of Lamentations. And Bible scholars classify approximately one-third of the, of the entire book of Psalms as songs of lament. And they distinguish those from songs of praise and thanksgiving and celebration. So basically, one out of every three songs in the Bible's playlist, if you will, are songs of lament. Now, if you compare that to many modern-day worship songs, the best estimates are that 11% of modern worship songs could be called songs of lament. And even then, most of them are pretty loosely understood that way. In fact... I would say you're far more likely to hear songs of lament on a country radio station than in church today. And so that makes me wonder if this is why we in the Western church, in the American church, have such a hard time when we suffer. Because unlike ancient Israel, we simply don't allow for expressions of lament in our worship gatherings. 
Right? Imagine ha- having uh, like a children's program and right afterwards singing something like, you know, oh, life sucks, God, where are you? Right? When is the last time that's happened? It doesn't happen that often. Right? In fact, that's part of the reason why tonight we have a, a special service at our Canton location called Silent Night. It's a service where we can come and lament and grieve our losses and our pain. One caveat I will make about lament, though. Lament is not just stomping your foot and throwing a temper tantrum, although that is necessary at times. Right? There is another side of lament. It's two sides of the same coin. So on one hand, lament is, just honestly describes your pain and your suffering. At the same time, it earnestly trusts in God for deliverance. It's both. So to give you an example, Psalm 23 Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? This psalm gives honest expression to the pain that he's experienced in the lowest part of life's valleys. And many of us have said that too. Man, I am just going through some really dark valleys right now. At the same time, he he doesn't end that way. The psalmist concludes by saying, uh, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And this is really important because the church doesn't talk about this uh, that often, but lament is an expression of worship. Lament is an expression of worship that is honest before God while continuing to trust in him. Oftentimes when somebody laments, we often look at them like kind of like, what's wrong with you? No, lament is an expression of worship. They're being honest before God while at the same time continuing to trust in him. And here's the great thing. When you're honest about your pain, you can actually be gracious with yourself. I mean, how many of you are actually gracious with yourself? I mean, confession here, I know that I'm not gracious with myself. To be gracious with yourself because you know you can be honest with God means that it's okay to, to not be okay than to acknowledge that. And I don't know how you handle hurt and pain and suffering, but here's my default response when I go through hard times. I often kind of uh, just, I, I start believing this lie, and the lie is this. I have to be strong for my family. I have to be strong for my wife and my kids and my friends because if I'm not, they, they can't see how much I'm hurting. Right? Anybody else like struggle with that lie? Or am I the only one? Yeah, thank you. One other person, maybe, maybe more at some of our other locations. But yeah, like I need to be strong. Well, says who? That's a lie. If that's the case, I need a new definition of what it means to be strong. I have to reject this whole idea that I have to somehow shove aside my feelings and stuff them down for the sake of being strong for other people. Because you know what? Honestly, you're not doing any favors uh, to anybody that it's close to you. In fact, I would, go, I would go as far as to say one of the greatest gifts you can give to those who are around you, to other people, is to let them see your humanity. One of the greatest gifts that, that, that uh, the community group that I'm a part of is exactly this. We gather together, and, and oftentimes it just starts with one person sharing about their, their failings and their struggles and their weaknesses and their humanity to just set off a whole chain reaction. And before you know at the end of the night, everybody's just like crying and praying, and we are just all like a, 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 a puddled mess of just honesty and vulnerability. 
But here's the thing that happens in places like that, right? You start to model uh, to others the way to deal with difficult circumstances in a way that is honoring and glorifying to God. Right? And that is a much better gift to give your loved ones than this artificial strength. And besides, for your loved ones, let me say this. Their faith is not contingent upon how strong they think you are, but how strong they believe God is. So let up with the whole lie that I have to be strong for other people. You can be honest to God because he could deal with all of your tough questions. Here's the other truth that I want to talk about, uh, especially as it relates to suffering. And it says God is not untouched by our loss. His heart breaks when our hearts break. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's uh, 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 Chronicles of Narnia, he has this great scene in The Magician's Nephew where Diggory, a young boy, is standing before Aslan, who is the lion Christ figure, and Diggory is, is begging and pleading Aslan to somehow find a cure, to give him a cure for his ailing mother that is dying. Listen to, to this, this part that uh, C.S. Lewis writes in The magician, Magician's Nephew. And this is Diggory begging and pleading to Aslan. He says, but please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure mother? And then Lewis continues to write, up until then he had been looking at the lion's great front feet and the huge claws on them. Now in despair, he looked up at its face and what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life, for the tawny face was bent down near his own. And wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. And here we have this picture that God is not untouched by our loss, that his heart breaks perhaps even to a greater degree than when our hearts break. And the cross challenges any idea, uh, any picture of God as being remote and uninvolved and unconcerned and uncommitted and uncaring. The cross proves, no, God is not hermetically sealed. He is not immune or self-protected from our loss and our grieving. In fact, only Christianity out of all the world religions has the audacity to say it was God who in Jesus Christ came down and entered into this world of suffering. He experienced loneliness. He experienced betrayal. He was tortured as a scapegoat of political discrimination, and he was executed as a common criminal. In other words, God didn't have to, he didn't have to come, but when he came, he didn't just come and give us a sermon or a lecture. He came down to be with us in the ER, if you will. Here's another image. He didn't just come down to be with us in the ER. He took our place. He heals us and makes us whole, and he takes our place in the ER. This is the truth about who God is. And now, granted, some of you may still be thinking, you know, okay, I, I still, that still doesn't help me with the reason why I'm suffering the way I am. And so I get asked that question quite often. Why am I going through this? Oftentimes, uh, I, I will tell people, you know what? You may never know the reason why you're going through this. But because of Jesus, you now know what the reason for your suffering isn't. 
right? The reason for your suffering isn't because God doesn't care. The reason for your suffering isn't because God doesn't love you. And what we need more than a reason for our suffering, what we need more than answers is this. What we need is the presence of God. Let me read to you uh, one letter uh, of a man who uh, recounted uh, his experience as a young boy at his mother's funeral. And again, this I think really illustrates the point I'm trying to make. Listen to his letter. He says this, I don't remember much about my mother's visitation or funeral, just bits and pieces. I remember getting my hair cut short the day before. I'd let my hair grow long in the back in, uh, in, the back in those days. It looked awful. Someone suggested that my mother would have liked it if my hair were shorter, so I agreed. I also remember thinking that her funeral was the most racially diverse assembly in the history of our church's sanctuary. My mother taught in what amounted to my hometown's inner city public school system for over 20 years. I remember seeing the black and brown faces of so many of her former students packed into our church's auditorium, and I remember thinking, why isn't it like this on Sundays? And I remember Tom. Tom was my friend's father, a man who let me stay at his house for weeks at a time during the summer, a man who would take me fishing with his son, a man who I had known for years. At the visitation, with the line stretching the length of the room to the back door, I saw Tom walk in and scan the room. When he spotted me at the front, he bypassed the hundred or so people who had been waiting, daring them to stop him, and he headed straight for me. Unsurprisingly, no one said a word to him. Tom came right up to me, didn't say a word, just grabbed me by the shoulders and squeezed, his eyes narrowing with focused concentration, and I knew what he was communicating with that squeeze. And then he embraced me. This big, burly man put his arms around me and hugged me harder than anyone has ever hugged me before, lifting me off my feet. And with a lump developing in my throat, I knew once again the language that needs no words. I'm here for you, Tom. I'm right here, boy, standing with you, standing for you. Tom put me back down and pushed my shoulders back, putting his hand to the back of my neck, and I saw a tear in his eye as he stood there shaking his head. This ain't right, what you're going through. But you keep standing, you hear me? You just keep standing. And with that, Tom turned and walked out the door. I heard a lot of sincere, heartfelt words that day, words of condolence and comfort from many well-meaning people, family members, friends, members of our church, but I don't remember a single one. I wish I did, but I don't. But 24 years later, I remember Tom. I remember his presence in my pain. I remember his embrace, his quivering lip, his willingness to weep with me while I wept. And when I am tempted to let grief become despair, I remember that I never truly walk alone. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And one of the best ways that the presence of God is mediated to all of us is through the presence of other believers. Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And I will say this, we are ones who convene regularly around twin polarities. We convene together and we rejoice and we cry out in sorrow. We celebrate in jubilation, and we come in grief and loss. 
My, my uh, son, ever since he was six, he, he's 12 now, he's wanted to be a pastor. And, and that brings great joy and strikes a lot of terror in my heart. And one of the things that I tell him is, Micah, you know, daddy is there on people's best days. I'm also there on people's worst days. One day I'm talking to an elderly woman who decides to give her life to Jesus. Later that same day, I'm talking to a young couple who've just been told by their physician that their yet unborn child has a 0% chance of surviving outside the womb. Friends, suffering is universally painful but God is eternally faithful. True, deep, abiding joy in a world of suffering is found only in the Lord. And so here's my challenge to you. This week, you will run into somebody who needs the presence and comfort of God in their life. Will you be open and available to be the presence of Jesus to that person? Whether they're religious or not, they need to feel and, and to, to, uh, to, to experience God's love through someone like you. Another thing I want to do is I want to introduce you each, sun, each Sunday during this Advent series, we've been talking about a, a, a missional partner that we support and we come alongside and what I want to do is to introduce to you uh, somebody, a friend of mine, Pastor Bob Oliveira, who is a missionary to Brazil, and I'm going to have him close a sermon by sharing a couple stories of, of how Christmas is still making a difference, not only here, but around the world in places like Brazil. Uh, Pastor Bob, uh, let's welcome Pastor Bob as he comes to the stage today. Bom dia. Good morning. Porque Deus amou ao mundo de tal maneira que deu seu filho unigênito para que todo aquele que nele crer não pereça, mas tenha a vida eterna. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whosoever believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It is good to be here with you this morning. I thank God for seeing the testimony of his calling this group of saints together. It is a joy to be out there and see people coming in. A lot of kids. That's good news for a church. I wish your church was closer to where I live because I love hearing your pastor. You're blessed. joy. American missionaries went to Brazil and my parents came to know the Lord Jesus due to the message of joy Christ has come that these missionaries spoke to my parents. However, when I was 13 and a freshman in high school, I was expelled from two schools. My mother very lovingly with a belt in her hand she said, son, your problem is not discipline because I have it. Your problem is spiritual. She said, the offspring of a dog is a puppy. The offspring of a cat is a kitten. But the offspring of two Christian parents is a sinner. And you need to give your life to Christ. So I want you to know after this whipping, and she did follow through, but she only whipped you from the waist down on your legs so your pants would cover. 
She said, every Thursday, I'm going to fast and pray until God changes your heart. And if you grew up in church, John 3.16, you know it well. But that one Sunday, when the visiting pastor was talking, he says, let's read John 3.16. I said, not again. Ah, but the Holy Spirit got a hold of me. Sit down, boy, and listen. And the joy which we spoke of this morning, for God so loved the world, uh-uh, that night the Holy Spirit made me see, for God so loved Bob. And the Holy Spirit got a hold of my heart, and I came down the aisle before he was finished, crying, and I heard the lady's voice say, praise the Lord. You know who that was, don't you? Now she was happy for two reasons. Her son had finally given his life to Christ, and now she could eat all day Thursday. <laughs> but that's how I came to know the Lord as my Savior. Your church already has 15 people committed to go on a mission trip to Manaus, Amazonas, Brazil, in July. We are going to get on this medical boat. It is a 40 feet I mean, 40 meter long boat, three levels. And don't worry about the mosquitoes. We have cabins. The cabins are air conditioned with bunk beds. You close the door, the mosquito says, where are those gringos? <laughs> you, and then we're gonna go up the river 12 hours on the first night and when we wake up, we are in a village along the river. And when the boat comes, people come from everywhere in canoes. They line up. They go through a triage. And then they start seeing a medical doctor, a dentist, a physical therapist. And everything is free, including the medication. I want to tell you a story that I personally witnessed. A young lady, 14 years old, the boat stopped in her community just when she was having labor pains. And she delivered a baby. Now, if the boat had not been there, she would have to have gone on a canoe for six hours. She wouldn't have made it. Now, her family, I visited with her mother. I thought she was too young to have a baby. That family only had one toothbrush for the whole family. One toothbrush for the whole family. That's something you could do, collect toothbrush, toothpaste, Pastor John. So the group, when they go in July, they bring those things. Everybody who comes to the boat gets a little bag, with goodie, a goodie bag. But this young lady, Grandma, said, Pastor, I need to talk to you alone. We went to the back of the house, and she says, that is my daughter. The baby is my grandchild. Do you know who the father is? I said, my sister, I don't. She said, it is grandpa. My heart broke. I started crying. My wife and I adopted five children, children close to my heart. And there was no police station, no child protective service in that village. But the missionaries started visiting and supporting that family. It's when Christ comes that People experience joy, joy for having their sins forgiven, 
enjoy because groups of people like you care enough to show God's compassionate hugs through the medical boat. May the Lord bless you as a church. May the Lord bless your, parent, your, your pastors. And may you ask, like the children ministry director said, what part God wants to have you when he said, go, go. Shall we pray? Loving Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for loving us so much that you gave your only son to die on the cross. Thank you, Jesus Christ, that you are obedient to the Father and died on the cross on our behalf. And you rose again and ascended unto heaven, promised to come back and receive us unto yourself. And we look forward to that new encounter. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that it is by grace that we are saved. And none of us saw beauty at the cross until you touch our hearts. And we thank you and praise you for being the one who opened our eyes to the cross. Bless these folks in the name of your Son who loves us more than we can imagine. Amen.